this idea that the, there's going to be a sterling crisis is complete nonsense because there's the guys on the other side of the fence as well and you've forgotten about them and they, they need to um to to, to get their uh, economy right as well so you can't have this situation where uh, where sterling will collapse off the bottom of the off the bottom of the pile because if if you did that then every other currency in the entire world would go to the go to the moon and that's not going to happen either because that would destroy their oh. export business you know, it's it, 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 there's always oh. two sides to these. <laughs> okay. It's, it's, this is a problem you've got with it. Again, they try and frame it so that you only look at things from one side of the fence. And you go, no, I'm going to look at it from the other side of the fence. What does that mean to, the, to you know, Japan? Japan's a classic example in the US. You know, as soon as the J- Japan-US dollar exchange rate goes to what they call nosebleed territory, in other words, Japanese exports get, um, get hit, what does the Japanese central bank do? Buys a load of dollars. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today's part two of my two-part conversation with systems consultant and GIMS associate, Neil Wilson. Neil's also the co-author of the 2020 paper, An Accounting Model of the UK Exchequer, which is published by the Gower Initiative for Modern Money Studies, or GIMS. Today's episode is also part five of a larger seven-part series with all three co-authors, first individually and personally, and ending with a joint interview with all three where we discuss the paper in depth. In part one, Neil and I talked about how he came to MMT, how he led a lawsuit against the UK government in the name of 10,000 people, and MMT on the social media platform, Reddit. Today in part two, I learned a whole lot from Neil. I read several of his blog posts and I asked him several questions about them. You'll notice me experience more than one light bulb. Neil's blog is newwayland.com, and links to each of the posts we discuss can be found in the show notes. To share one example, I knew that the neoclassical assumption of full employment also requires the assumption of balanced trade. What I learned today is that although I'm correct, it's bigger than that. The assumption of full employment requires no leakages of any kind. In other words, if even one dollar of income is not spent, or it is spent, but not in the United States, then demand in the United States will, of course, be less than maximized. This means that firms will respond by lowering production, which puts workers in danger of being let go. This means that full employment is no longer possible. So if a dollar of income is saved or invested, That's a dollar not spent at an American firm, and this is called a leakage. 
if $10 is spent to buy something from a company in Italy, but only $5 are spent at American firms, then that's another $5 leakage. So neoclassical economics requires every dollar of income to be spent and for those dollars to be spent in the United States. There's some more to this, but I'll leave it there. You'll find a link to a post where I discuss this topic, although it was written before I spoke with Neil, in the show notes. We end today's episode by discussing Neil's role in the UK Exchequer paper, including how he discovered it and how he came on board. He also gives a brief summary of the paper and its concepts, which serves as a nice preview for next week's episode, where I talk with all three co-authors and ask them a bunch of questions on the paper itself. But for now, let's get right back to my conversation with Neil Wilson. The main reason that I, I in this is because that's where young people hang out and MMT needs to be involved with young people because that's where it, that's where the future is. They need to know about it. Um, they need to um, they need to get hold of it and they need to run with it and they need to insist that their politicians implement the uh, the recommendations that MMT puts forward. Um, and then they need to tell the politicians particularly that they don't believe any of the nonsense that's uh, that's put out there. It's okay. very very important that we capture the young and we get them on side. That's why I, I operate on Discord. You know, talk to young people; they're, they're very comfortable with Discord. Hmm. And how do they, they how do they stumble upon you beyond the link in your blog? Well, yeah, that's it's largely the link in the blog, and you know, occasionally I pop it up in in, in somewhere else. But yeah, it's a it's a work in progress. It's okay. it's something that uh, I uh, I put out there, and uh, eventually somebody will find you. There is a, another Discord server called MM Teens, which is uh, basically a, young, a bunch of young people who are already into MMT. Mm. And that's a Discord server as well. And, mm. uh, you know, it's it's good to watch them and see how they, they interact with each other and so we can actually tailor our message towards what what they need. What's the name of that one again? MM Teens. Teens. Yeah. Oh, I've just seen that mentioned. Uh, yeah, Steve Keen just Steve Keen did a... Did a uh, um, Steve Keen did a... Uh, a video with them and just a huh. few few days, few weeks ago. And yeah, that's the first uh, they time have I... a Discord service. Yeah. yeah. Huh, okay. Okay. Um, okay. So I read I read some of your blogs and uh, I have some questions and we can get into what what I'd like to close with, you'll just give a summary of your paper. I have a question about your paper. Yeah. Uh, the summary that you give will be immediately before the joint interview. So right. Rich Richard will be first, then Andy and then you, and then the joint interview. So you'll kind of lead into that. Yeah. Um, the first, the most recent blog post that you wrote is regarding too much money chasing too few goods. Yeah. And uh, you basically say that that's wrong. And I'm, I'm going to try and say it from my point of view first, and then mm-hmm. he'll tell me. Too much money chasing too few goods is wrong, you say. Yeah. And basically, it's too... It's too simplistic. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to cause inflation, and too much money chasing too few goods is is mis- is very misleading. As best as I can kind of understand yeah. it, it's more yeah. demand for products can be inflationary, can cause prices to go up, and also demand and that demand does not necessarily have to be accompanied by direct spending. It could be someone saying, "I have money that I have a bit available to spend. I have credit. I want this product," and that just that request even though there's no money directly involved, immediately involved, that can cause 
infl- yeah. you know, prices to yeah, go up yeah. as well, demand or whatever. So can you clarify, can you, I guess, guess basically summarize your, yeah. that, you know, that concept? It, it, it's again, a simplistic story. It's a simplistic story. You know, if you, if you have lots of money, then that will cause the price of things to go up because obviously you've got lots of money. Uh, but they, there's loads of assumptions in that. There's loads of assumptions in that. And one of them is that you're actually spending the money and you haven't stuck it in a drawer. If you've got a billion dollars and you stick it in a drawer, that ain't going to cause inflation. And that's the key point. People save money. Everybody knows that people save money, but the, the neoclassicals try and get you to forget that. Hmm. Um, and that's vitally important in the, in the too much money chasing too few goods line, is that the money has to chase. And money only chases when it's actually been offered in payment for goods and services. Um, and if the money doesn't chase because it's sat in your wallet or it's sat in a bank account or even, and most importantly, it's sat in bonds because there's this concept in, in, uh, in, in the neoclassical idea that if you're holding bonds, somehow that magically makes the money not available. Well, if you actually mm. buy anything in business, you buy it on credit. So you generally on a month's credit, you say you order in a, a you know, I don't know, 10,000 widgets and, that, and, the, uh, and the supplier will send you 10,000 widgets and they will... Um, and they will mark up your account saying that you owe so many thousand dollars for those uh, for those widgets. And you settle that up at the end of the month. Well, that's plenty of time to sell some bonds, particularly into a market that has, uh, that's got infinite liquidity because the actual treasury and the, um, and the government back the, back the bond market so you can always sell it. So they're as good as money. That's how the banks use them. They're, they're, as, good as, uh, they're as good as money. So this idea that bonds somehow magically stop money chasing goods is complete nonsense. Uh, bonds are money, as far as uh, as far as MMT is concerned. They're just the same same thing in a different form. Um, and so, if those savings in bonds don't cause inflation, then savings in money won't cause inflation for exactly the same reason, which is that people aren't spending them. Funny enough, they've got them in the drawer somewhere, saving them for a rainy day, or they've got a big pile in their current account so they can show off for status purposes. It's that concept we try and get across to uh, neoclassical people that MMT is about, is about these savings that stop th- stop people from spending they, they they save for insurance purposes they save for status purposes they don't sit there thinking oh i've got five percent in five percent interest rate so i won't spend but if it goes down to four and a half i'm going to spend everything which it seems to be how they uh, how the loanable funds system works okay all right uh, a couple questions with that mm-hmm. but that money sitting in a bond or not I mean sitting in a bond or sitting in savings mm-hmm. the money sitting in savings is not chasing goods mm-hmm so that's that right. doesn't seem to be a conflict. Well, that's so I, like I understand money, money, too much money chasing too few goods. I understand that doesn't include, and this I actually this was the one thing that kind of was insightful to me in your paper in in that post was that you can have demand without money. You can say I have money available, and it's I mean kind of related to a home, yeah, yeah. purchasing a home. I have the money available. I'm willing. Here's my proposal. I don't. I'm not. The money's not involved yet. But I, I am putting demand on that, even though I, I got on credit. Yeah. So yeah. you know that that money is, in that sense, I'm making demand without money. But, but when you say that money is in savings, that's not chasing. I, I, I forgot the specifics of what you said. Yeah, um, it's sorry. it's it's the situation that we've got when when um, furlough pays are being hand, handed out, and because it's it's caused a government deficit to arise that. 
oh, that's terrible because we've got this big pile of savings that's going to be spent. And it's like, no, it's it's not being spent. That's the point. That's why there is a government deficit in the first place. The government deficit is telling you that it's not being spent because they're two sides of the same coin. Um, so why are you worried about it suddenly being spent because we've opened up? Some of it will be when, we, when we're opened up and then the government deficits and possibly even the government debt will reduce depending on how, how much gets how much gets um, uh, spent. But it's not that big a deal. It's not as if there's going to be this huge wall of money that's going to, going to go collapsing down into the system. And moreover, it's, um, it, it's not as if the supply side isn't going to be able to respond and we're not going to, be able to increase the amount that we actually, actually produce. The inflationistas are absolutely convinced that this huge amount of savings that have been built up is going to devastate the, uh, devastate the economy. And it just isn't going to be the case because people are scared. People have paid back a lot of their debts and they're not going to be taking those debts on. People have got very large rainy day funds and they're going to be holding that back because they don't know what the future holds. And even those people who have made an absolute packet out of it are going to be sat there counting their coins rather than going out and buying Ferraris. I know they can't buy Lamborghinis because all the mm. uh, all the Lamborghinis in the UK have been sold. That's the entire supply for this year has already been sold. Yeah. So, you know, you can't get one. So you'll have to wait till next year to get hold of a Lamborghini. It's that this thing again of time if you if you look at the way that that neoclassicals actually operate they really struggle with this concept of time and this idea that you can if you can cause a delay in in something as in you know you can't now buy a lamborghini until january next year that eliminates a certain amount of demand somebody's going to be sat there with some money or they want oh. to spend on a lamborghini but they can't spend it in july they have to spend it in january oh <laughs> oh okay because that was going to be my next question okay so <laughs> This, so, all right, I'm going to read a sentence from your post. Or, yeah. or it may be that the supplier simply runs out at a current price, introducing a mathematically intractable time delay into the proceedings that mainstream cognitive dissidence appears permanently yes. unable to detect. So what I think you're saying is... Yeah, Lamborghinis. You can't buy a Lamborghini in July in the UK because there aren't any. And they won't be any until January. But you really want a Lamborghini, so you will be waiting until January. And that, that demand is over time. The, the units of demand are dollars per month, dollars per week, dollars per hour. That's the, that's the unit of demand. It's actually the unit of turnover. That's the businesses operate at effectively like miles per hour. It's dollars per month. And it's, it, you get this. That's company. like a debt to GDP. Yes. Well, it's, GDP is, yeah, GDP is, is, is a, a form of turnover. And turnover is in dollars per time period. It's not right. dollars. It's not miles. It's miles per hour. The two, right. the two are completely different. You've got to get those clear in your mind. That right. dollars, which is you know the amount of savings that we've got, and dollars per month, as in how much is being spent per month, is a, a, a totally different units, and they operate in in, in, in almost completely different um, right. spheres. Right. Which is why just GDP is a meaningless. Yes, exactly. Ratio. Because debt is a debt is a stock and GDP is a, a flow and it's not, and what what the de- what the devil difference does that make unless you believe that there's a fixed amount of money and there isn't. Mm. Um, okay, so that okay, I, I gotta get, I gotta think about that for a while. But but, <laughs> but the fact that that this this the, I was struggling with what you meant by time delay, but now I kind at least yeah. I don't I don't well, think I don't want to say I understand it, but but now I have a really concrete example that I think is a very good example of it, which is they ran out of Lamborghinis, so now. The people who want Lamborghinis either have to choose another kind of a car or not purchase a car at all and wait until Lamborghinis are available. So that yeah. time that is a literal, just a human understandable time delay. Yes. That, that that so the supply has been temporarily 
whatever. That's it. So there could be no demand because demand is desire um, plus desire plus ability to pay, but it's got to be a desire for something that's available. So you, there can be the demands. The demand has been eliminated until January, and it's been and that's delayed. Kind of, and that's kind of there can't be inflation if products don't exist. No, exactly, because you can't buy them. <laughs> <laughs> that's the point. That's a, that's a kind of a weird concept. Yeah, it is. You can't have inflation with a product that doesn't exist. Yeah. Wow. So um, this this comes back to my favorite quote from um, one of my uh, my favorite um, computer science professors, which is Edgar Dijkstra, um, who once wrote in a in a paper of his when he says that that our intellectual powers are rather geared to master static relations, and that our powers to visualize processes evolving over time are relatively poorly developed, and that. I think sums up mainstream economics in a in a nutshell. They can't. They really struggle with this concept of time, and that time can eliminate demand simply because I want a Lamborghini and there aren't any. Can you please repeat the quote? The quote, yes, which is that our intellectual powers are rather geared to master static relations. Oh, than, static relations. Okay, yeah. and, and okay. that our powers to visualize processes evolving over time are relatively poorly developed. Got it. We struggle with dynamics. We're very good at static. And therefore, mm. it's very easy for us to slip into this idea that because we understand it statically, we understand it dynamically. And it's it's not the case. Wow. Interesting. So it, we're in, I mean, it's it, it implies impatience. Yes. It implies that we'll look at a picture and we'll analyze a picture as long as the picture doesn't change. But we won't. We yeah. won't. You know. Okay. I mean, very interesting. My classic one is whenever I talk about um, spending and I use the, the analogy of a stone skipping across a pond. Which is that you know when the government spends, you, you you throw the stone out across the pond, and every time it bounces a tax point, mm. and eventually it'll disappear. And so that shows that for every time the government spends a hundred dollars, it will always get a hundred dollars back in tax for any positive tax rate. And you can show that mathematically; it's very straightforward to do. And actually, what happens is when you throw a stone out across a pond, and if you can imagine this as a video going across a stone bouncing across a pond, and you press pause on the video, okay, that's savings because it just pauses the video. And then when you decide to spend your savings again, it's like taking the pause off and then the hop carries on and then mm. spend. So every, every hop is, a, is a, a spending income taxation point where somebody spends, somebody else gets an income and some tax is taken. And mm. If you do that as a stone skipping across a pond, that's, that's kind of how it works. I just learned an insightful thing that kind of reminds me of is uh, uh, Bill Peoples may, uh, makes this, anal- not analogy, but just obvious, very concise, obvious point that Government creates money, be, and government destroys money. Mm-hmm. Everything that happens between is just exchanging hands, and yes. so every yeah. skip in your pond is just an exchange. Just an exchange, hands. yeah. That's all it is. Yeah, and, and some it, of it bleeds off with taxation. That's right, but importantly, the stone always sinks. And the sinking is the is the taxation, the destruction, deletion. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Uh, one clarification: you said that mainstream, basically, uh, roughly ba- mainstream says that savings doesn't exist basically and yeah, then you well, also it's said- financial savings really it, it, it uses savings in a different in a different frame to to the way that we do and that's a lot to do with the fact that mmt splits things into sectors and when you split things into sectors things pop up that aren't there in the aggregate so the uh, the, the mainstream is essentially completely collapsed they don't appear to have these sectors whereas of course mmt analyzes things by drawing a dividing line between government and non-government oh so they basically pretend they over abstract they over abstract government yeah. savings with private savings and, yeah. and uh, yeah. okay so i was about to say 
that on one hand, you said that mainstream basically pretends there is no saving. But on the other hand, you, you also said that something to the effect of, of savings causes inflation or threatens inflation to something like that, mm-hmm. which, which felt like a contradiction, which felt yeah. like somewhat of a contradiction. Well, as it's, savings can be spent. And therefore, if they are spent, then that adds to demand. Um, but they tend the, the flow is the flow out of savings and the flow in. It's a bit like the bathtub again, isn't it? It's whether the whether you, you if you if you increase the size of the plug hole, then obviously you will start to drain savings, or you uh, or if you reduce the amount of flow that's going in in terms of people are spending more, um, and then you will increase the amount. You know, you know, you remember in the um, uh, the JD Alt picture of the mm-hmm. uh, of the mm-hmm. circulation of the bathtub. Um, so yes, you do. You end up with a stock of savings, but of course, if you increase the amount of flow out there, you can actually cause inflation because you're adding to spending from savings. Mm-hmm. Um, so that can actually cause inflation, but it's it's very unlikely to because demand will demand will respond. People will run out of Lamborghinis, so therefore mm-hmm. they're going to have to wait. So they will they'll still keep their savings because they want a Lamborghini, mm-hmm. um, and also people are going to hold on to the savings and not spend as much as they think because they're scared. Or they're or they're or they're paying or they want to pay down debt instead, which mm-hmm. has been a big a big thing over the uh, over this last eighteen months. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Very interesting. Um, all right. Let's let's switch subjects to another post of yours, and that is uh, I should have written the titles, but I didn't. But the date that the date was uh, July sixteenth. Uh, I'll put links. No, November seventh last year. All right. Uh, which is basically bond vigilantes. Um, if bond vigilantes, mainstream view is if bond vigilantes don't punish us, then the rest of the world will. Yes. And miraculous, yeah. and, it, and then quote miraculously without any effect on themselves or their economy. And I'd like to, I'd like to kind of get into that. I I am just, I I dived into John Harvey's work. Yeah. I interviewed I yeah. interviewed him on on his work, and wow, it is so interesting. Yes. So interesting. So Good I night. feel, yeah, I feel like, and, and it's kind of what's what's. At first, what hit me as very unusual is that the real versus financial dichotomy is completely opposite yeah. outside of a nation. Yeah, yeah. So mainstream mainstream basically suggests that you know finance money is most important within a country, where we know that resources are most important. Yeah. In reality, resources are most important. And then it's completely opposite. And we have to set aside Fidel Kaboob's work because, yes, real resources are, in fact, obviously the most important thing to provision your your, comp- your country. I'm setting that aside just temporarily just to say that the on the international scale, by far what happens the most is financial transactions, not trading transactions. That's right. Yeah. Which means that the influence of financial transactions – is like 98 90 to 98% of all transactions which clearly means that that has more influence on international uh, exchange rates it well, has more influence yeah, on it, it can do um, it, it it's this thing again about about the exchange rate is 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 um, is determined at the margins what tends to happen in international finance is that there's an awful lot of financial transactions that go off and obviously the finance the the, the the, the number of financial transactions exchange is huge. It's absolutely right. massive. And the internet is, a, is, yeah, the you internet know, it just is makes it, you, I mean, you see it now. And, and, yeah. uh, but how the exchange rates actually come, come to be the plan, you have this, there's a, you know, a plan for, people plan for 
for how transactions actually operate. And then it comes towards what in reality imposes itself upon those particular plans. That's a classic Keynesian view. Uh, and that occurs across across international boundaries just the just the same you know it's uh it's certainly more complicated across uh, across international boundaries but things still have to equi- uh, equilibrate I can't even say equilibrate I do edit it got invented <laughs> editing for a reason just take the time <laughs> equilibrate I'll get it right uh, eventually um it's it's a difficult one I mean, I'm I'm reading. I've been reading John's uh, John's new paper, which is doing um, for a uh, for a book that's, uh, that that Gims is gonna gonna bring out in the in the in the near future, uh, and he's done some he's done a, a great chapter on that from uh, from the UK point of view, and he makes this point again about about in, international transactions and how uh, this idea that the, there's going to be a sterling crisis is complete nonsense because there's. The guys on the other side of the fence as well, and you've forgotten about them, and they, they need to, um, to 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 get their uh, economy right as well. So you can't have this situation where uh, where sterling will collapse off the bottom of the off the bottom of the pile, because if if you did that, then every other currency in the entire world would go to the go to the moon, and that's not going to happen either, because that would destroy their oh. export business. You know, it's it, 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 there's always oh. two sides to these. <laughs> Okay, it's it's this is a problem you've got with it. Again, they try and frame it so that you only look at things from one side of the fence, and you go, "No, I'm going to look at it from the other side of the fence." What does that mean to the, to you know Japan? Japan's a classic example in the U.S. You know, as soon as the J- Japan U.S. dollar exchange rate goes to what they call nosebleed territory, in other words, Japanese exports get um, get hit. What does the Japanese central bank do? Buys a load of dollars. Why to bring the exchange rate back down again so that their exports oh. aren't damaged? Okay, you know, so it's going to be it's the same. You know, where else are you going to sell your tomatoes? You've got to sell them somewhere. If you if you end up with a glut of tomatoes, that drives down the price of all tomatoes everywhere. That's what happened with oil last year. It went negative. It went negative because there was suddenly a glut of oil. You can't afford to do that. You've got to sell it. You've either got to sell it, or you've got to stop producing it, or you've mm. got to stockpile it and stop it going onto onto the market. There are always two sides to every trade, and you must look at it from the other side of the trade as well. When that's you do really that. that's really interesting. So a dollar collapse is really scary. Yeah. But then that implies that that is every impossible currency. to not be. Yeah. An explosion on the other side in the other direction. And that means all of them, every one, okay? And it also means that any single one of those other currencies, of which there are hundreds, can immediately uh, bring down that and stop that dollar collapse simply by buying up all the excess dollars with their own currency. Because it's because they're cheap. Yes. And because they're incredibly and they, cheap. And they have infinite capacity to do that. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. You see? Okay. So you, you, you talk to people around about that who are convinced about currency collapses and all the rest of it and, and see what it's like on the other, and what it's like on the other side in terms of huh. measuring your export business. Don't forget I'm those like, export businesses keep people employed in those countries. You know, huh. if they lose those export businesses, they're going to have thousands of people out of work and they're going to have riots on the street. It's, wow. just, it's just not going to happen. Somebody's going to sit there and say, so shall we have riots on the street or shall we uh, print a few more thousand yen and, and buy up a sack load of dollars? You know, it's um, it, it, it just doesn't bear thinking about. The whole thing is yet another framing. It's exactly the same as, you know, oh, inflation's going up a bit. Let's stop everything. All right. I want to cut this interview short and get back on social media because I see this all the time and now I know a response. I finally know a response. <laughs> I, I've seen this so many times and yeah. I've never felt like 
I just yeah. I just don't even try because I'm just like I mean now it's like that's obvious so obvious to respond of how to respond to that. I mean, I, you know, I don't like, I need to convince them they're obviously whatever, but it's just like, I get it. I get that just is enlightening. Okay. Really, really interesting. Um, to finish my point from originally of mm -hmm. the dichotomy, how the dichotomy is, is opposite. So in, in a country, mainstream says financial is critical. MMT shows that real is, is critical yeah. in the international view. Mainstream says that real trade is critical. And that financial is just, you know, just not a big deal. La la. It's just <laughs> kind of consequential when where John Harvey, I don't think MMT, but John Harvey post Keynesian, which I'm sure MMT agrees with, is that financial is by far the more influential, you know, yeah. again, setting aside the important Fidel Kaboob stuff, yeah. but just just to the, the quantity of of transactions 90 to 98 percent of, of all international transactions are financial which means obviously that they have a powerful effect as opposed to trade and and um so it's it's really opposite world and and i and i figured out why it's it's that way and the reason that it's that way the reason that mainstream requires you to believe that or requires the assumption that it must be trade that's most important is because if they don't do that, then their assumption of full employment in any individual country falls apart. Yeah. It's, it's a, and, and to make that to, to step by step to understand that connection um, is, is an, is an insight that I had from, from resulting from a John Harvey interview, because if you don't have, you know, everything goes to balance trade is what mainstream says. Every, yeah. you know, just naturally goes to balance trade. No worries. You know, every, everything goes back to balance trade now or in the future, which is equivalent to the to the full employment assumption in within a country. Yes. The reason that they have to have that, and you know, I'll, I'll pretend that I'm teaching you something. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not. <laughs> That's um, all right. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, so the reason that they have to have that is because if it doesn't go to balance trade, then then money leaks out of countries in a way that you can't predict and yeah. money comes into countries in a way that you can't predict. And therefore, if the demand, I'm impressed that I remember this so specifically, um, then the demand within a country, the only way to have full employment is if you maximize demand at all times. Yeah. And if some of that money goes out of the country in an unpredictable manner and some comes back in in an unpredictable manner and the amount that leaves is more even to a little bit then you, then that maximum demand is no longer possible because some of it's going to another country yeah. which means that that the demand is going to result that lower demand is going to result in people being fired which means that their assumption of full employment within any single country in, in other words re, assuming that trade always balances creates a bubble around every single country yeah which yeah. makes their assumption of full employment that no money leaves and no money or, or the money that leaves and the money that comes back is always exactly the same because trade is balanced. Yeah. The way, which the way, makes that, her, yeah. The way that MMT, I would suggest, looks at it is to rather than drawing the bubble around a country, you need to draw the bubble around everybody who holds something that is denominated in that country, in that currency. I, I, yes, 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 yes. So, so the more specific is all holders of a dollar. Yeah. And if you do yeah. that, if you do that, then what you find out is that foreigners save just in exactly the same way as anybody who's domestic. So they save in dollars. We know that uh, for certain. We know that for certain. So as soon as you get savings, that's your leakage. 
And that's the point at which you don't get the, the feedback that mainstream expects you see. That's why you don't get this balanced trade. You don't oh, get this balanced wow. trade because it's just, it's, it's basically how much, how much imports and how much exports and how much have people saved. And it's that back, we're back to savings again. Um, wow. And, uh, so savings is another way to sabotage. Yes. Like finan- okay, so financial transactions on the international level yeah. is, is sabotages their requirement for maximum demand because yes. they can't have some of it leaking out to the, to the foreign sector. What is the and- Norwegian Global Pension Fund? The Norwegian Global Pension Fund is a big sack load of savings in dollars and euros and pounds that they don't want to spend at this particular point in time. What does that do? That drains demand in the United States and oh, Great Britain wow. in the Eurozone. Okay, which we have, if you were following MMT, you just go, that's fine. You want to hold on to those, uh, those pounds. That's great. I'll just replace them with new pounds via the job guarantee. And we're all happy. Everybody, the demand is replaced and everybody's happy. That's how we do it in, in MMT. So it's the, it's, they don't get this idea that foreigners save. Just, they can't have leakages of any kind, is what you're saying. They can't have leakages of any kind, but of course we we know they're saved. We say we can see it. That's what the that's what sovereign wealth funds are. They're uh, they're, they're huge savings pots. And wow. uh, yeah, I mean, I I've got a blog as you've probably seen that explains how the uh, how the Norwegian structure works, and how the how a foreign exchange transaction actually works, and how that ends up in the uh, in the sovereign wealth fund. Uh, including all the creation of money that creates it, because all, all foreign exchange transactions are done via via money creation. You create a load of money and then you collapse them down again. That's actually how they all work. Um, oh. And if you actually follow that through, it naturally ends up in in either a sovereign wealth fund or in the, if it's China, then China ends up um, ho- holding those dollars on the asset side of its central bank because that's they, that's just how they they operate. Um, so you know it's it's, it's essentially neo mercantilism by um, by those these export led countries. Um, they're not doing Amen. it deliberately. They're just looking after their own. They're looking after their own country, which is what you would expect them to do. And if we're on the other side, we're we're net importers. We need to look after our countries in the same manner, and that's why we need job guarantees. When you say mercantilist, is that essentially barter? Uh, no, mercantilism is a um, uh, it's an ancient um, form of, uh, of of economic of economic policy, which is very export led and and, and exploitative, oh, oh. and uh, so it's uh, yeah, I think goes. I think it's pre Adam Smith is huh. uh, mercantilism. Um, yeah, it's uh, but yeah, we we just we still have mercantilism. We just have it in a slightly different format to what it what it was in the uh, in the in the gold days, if you see what I mean. Hmm. Okay, so that that's really fascinating. The uh, the idea that I am correct that they have to assume balanced trade. Yes. But the but it's but it's broader than that. The they have to assume no leakages of any kind anywhere. Yes. And it's savings is a leakage. In. Yeah. Savings is a leakage. Yeah. Uh, foreign exchange is a leakage. If any leakages happen at all, then their assumption of full employment. Yeah. Is obliterated they're just drawing the, they're drawing the line incorrectly if you draw if you draw the line between uh, across a person and, and what they hold so if you've got dollars and you've got pounds in your hands and you sit in two currency zones because you've got you know you, you're you're active in the u.s um currency zone and you're active in the in the british pound currency zone just because you've got uh, accounts in in both in both areas you know you're that, that and you trade in one and you trade in the other and you might exchange between the two the two never meet they're inductively connected 
But if you draw that line across there rather than round the physical borders of the country, you get a different viewpoint. Which we did the similar in our in our paper, you know, where we've we did two pay, we did two different consolidations. One of which is to put the central bank inside the government, and one is to put the central bank inside the private sector. And you get two completely different views. You can mm. do the same with foreign exchanges if you put if you draw the line around people who hold dollars as opposed to those oh. who are in the country. You get a different view, and those that view informs. That's NMT is all about constructing a different view and looking at things from a slightly different slant and getting information from that. Wow. And that's the story. I actually, the same person that told me the idea of uh, government creates money and it destroys money. Everything between there is just exchanging hands. He's the same person that actually uh, a recent interview. It's the story. Accounting is the story you want to tell. Mm -hmm. It's however you choose to silo your, your entities, your accounts, whatever, Mm -hmm. Is yeah. the story you want to tell? It is and that that's the, that's what accounting is. You you construct a, a line around a set of a set of books, and that's a, an accounting entity, and, and it's 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 there to provide information. And you can draw that in in numerous different ways. It's the old line of um, the, the the line in business is that cash is cash is a matter of fact, and accounting is a matter of opinion. And of course, when you get to a, economics, cash becomes a matter of opinion as well. So it's uh, it all it all gets very meta at that point. Huh? Yeah. Actually, that just reminds me of uh, I. I think I think it was on MMT podcast that you were like, I, I, "There's no more even. There's not even enough words to be able to to describe the complexity of this." <laughs> yeah. Turtles all the way down, very much. <laughs> um, okay, so I'd like to go to our last subject, if I may, and that would be your paper. Um, oh, and I'd like yes. to I'd like to start off with. Um, for you to explain your role of how you became part of the paper of how you kind of observed it before you did. And my guess, and this is just a totally a guess, but Mm -hmm. um, whatever, I'll cut it if it's embarrassing, um, is uh, that, that Richard and Andy um, did a lot of work and got a lot of valuable information done. And my, my, my kind of my feeling after, after listening to you guys uh, is that you kind of came in and kind of helped glue it all together. So, uh, it, you know, maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong. Well, what was your role in this paper and how did you kind of, uh, how did you come to be part of it and how did you observe it uh, before you became part of it? Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, I was, uh, I was, well, I got invited in by GIMS to, um, to be one of their associates uh, late last year. And it was through discussions with that where I discovered that Richard and Andrew, who I'd known for a long time, had been working hard on um, on constructing this paper, and that they'd got a long way down the line of um, uh, of, of trying to work out how the UK's uh, monetary system and its government spending system actually functioned. And so I I said, well, that's fantastic. Let's let's get on a call and and, and have a chat with them about it and see where we are with it. And when I got on there and talked to them, and see how, how far they got, and I thought, oh, this is, this is fantastic. And all the rest of it, and they actually asked me, said, well. You, you, can you come on board and uh, uh, and give us a hand to, to to finish it off? And I, I thought, well, I'm, I'm very felt slightly embarrassed actually because they'd done all the work. You know, they'd, they'd done two two years worth of legwork on this. To uh, um, so when what approximately when are you talking about? Oh, now? this is what November last year. Oh my gosh, right October before last year. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so it's pretty late on. Okay. And they'd done all the legwork. You see, they'd done an awful lot of this legwork, and they were just trying to tie it all together. Um, and obviously I went through it all and thought, crikey, they've really got, I mean, they've got the smoking gun. 
um, which is the uh, the um, legislation in the Exchequer and Audit Acts 1866, mm-hmm. our fam- famous section for 13 and section 15 now, which we can wave around in front of anybody who says that governments run out of money and say, mm. no, it doesn't. There it is. Did you know about that before? Did I they didn't help know about that it? before. That was, that's um, that's uh, Andrew and Richard's work uncovered wow. that one. Um, mm. I had a feeling it was there, but I've not gone through the, the, obviously the legislation in the UK goes on for, you know, it's it's hundreds of years old. And, and, and uh, although we've got a really good site on legislation.gov.uk, it doesn't go all the way back. Okay. Um, and uh, so they've done some serious, serious legwork there um, of, of actually getting to the bottom of how this, how this actually works. And uh, yeah, so they got that there. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm accounting trained, so I could do all the uh, all the accounting tables. So that they, they went, when it was when I got the paper, it was a, uh, a, a sort of a standard table, and um, we we converted it after feedback into a uh, uh, into standard journals and uh, and balance sheets, mm. um, which then followed which followed the um, the pattern that that Randy Ray and Dirk Entz had used in their particular. Um, their particular papers on the, on the same topic, so that we could keep the thing relatively consistent. This is all again because we were seeking feedback from from our volunteers um, across the uh, across the world on mm. on how best to present this. Okay. And then it was just a lot of legwork actually uh, getting it getting it sorted out. We issued version one on on Boxing Day last year um, and uh, got that out there so that people could actually. 26th of December 26th, for those okay. who for those who don't have boxing days. Yeah, we need our first our first American <laughs> translation. <Got it>. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so uh, uh, we got that out there. Got some uh, some more uh, useful feedback on that, and uh, you know we were chewing it around and bouncing it around, and it's it's then when we it, we finally it finally clicked with us as to how the government banking service interacted with the main with the main Bank of England accounts. And that was the real revelation for, for version two that came out, um, which I think I've got a, a, a blog post about, which is oh, the, the gory details post. Yes, that's it. Okay. The gory details. And that's the key point. The key point there is that the, uh, these, uh, the government banking service is essentially the, uh, the government's PayPal. If you like, it's PayPal <laughs> that sits on top of, uh, sits on top of the Bank of England. And uh, and it's that that does the that does all, all the internal budget stuff is all done within within that, and uh, that the actual money is is just uh, is just transferred out of the Bank of England in uh, in in the same way that it has been for a hundred and fifty odd years. <laughs> it's nothing nothing has actually uh, nothing has actually materially changed. But the important thing that we we're trying to do in all that paper um, is to show that there is nothing in the legislation. And even nothing in the operational current operational structures that forces taxes and bonds to be uh, obtained prior to spending happening. Um, at, at the very best, it happens asynchronously at roughly the same time. They try and keep them in sync, but they don't need to be either um, before or after the, uh, the the spending processes. They're just they're just there at the same time. And it all just gets clean, cleaned up and tidied up, and you know, eyes dotted and t's crossed by the end of the day. So this idea that that there is somebody there who can who can turn around and say, um, government, uh, if, if government decides to spend X number of billion pounds, that that won't happen, just simply isn't the case. Um, if if it needs to be done, it can be done, and as long as the resources are there, so that government can actually purchase them, purchase them, then government can purchase them in its own currency 
exactly as MMT states. You, the, the paper essentially, not essentially, the paper is important because it takes the theory and confirms that it applies to reality. Yeah, that's right. It confirms that not just that reality is as it is, as MMT uh, describes, but that this is how it has operated for centuries, centuries, and since at least the uh, um, the late 17th century, as far as we can tell. So this mm. is normal. They know that this is how it works. And if they don't know that this is how it works, then really they ought to do. Um, there, there's, no, there's no way that um, it's, uh, it's ever operated in the, um, you know, government raises some money and then spends it. It's just, it just, it never, it's never happened like that. It really can't happen like that just from a straightforward practical banking point of view. Uh, and anybody who sits there and pretends that it does, it's just simply lying. And they should be called out as such. Mm, mm, mm. Um, okay. Uh, so a couple of things that uh, I, when I spoke with Andy recently, mm-hmm. um, the one-to-one taxation. Yeah. Uh, this is kind of a random observation, but but I don't know why it reminded me. One-to-one taxation. Parliament debates over taxation, and I'm pretty sure that you answered this question of that. That debate is normally over, pay, you know, essentially framed as pay for, and and essentially. I mean, that's, that's what they're doing, yeah. you know, even though it's not necessary, that's what the debate over taxation is in Parliament. Yeah. Yeah. And so what they've done is they've taken, like monetary policy is crude. Yeah. It's just by its nature, it's crude. There's no way to not make it crude. Um, as far as, you know, managing inflation is concerned. Yeah. Managing the yeah. economy. It's this obsession with domestic credit expansion, which has been a, um, a feature for, 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 for decades, and uh, mm-hmm. um, MMT basically says just let domestic credit expansion go where it needs to go and handle it in a different manner. Right. That's the that's the, 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 the fundamentally the key difference. The monetarists and even the the neoclassicalists and even some Keynesians are, uh, have got this idea that they can still manipulate things via interest rates and and alter things by how much people borrow and how much people save, and it just doesn't work. I mean, it hasn't worked for years. So, right, but there doesn't. But there, but our doesn't work does work for them in, yes. in an evil way. Yes. Um, so, so one to one tax. So essentially, they're imposing one to one taxation, and by this debate, they're and and as Andy has said, it is it does it does help to offset. You know, mm-hmm. from an MMT point of view, one to one does help to offset. You know, but it but what it does is it takes what could be an extremely precise tool to manage inflation. Um, you know, among many, but but taxation is one of many tools to manage inflation. But it takes what could be extremely precise and effective, and makes it into as just as ineffective as monetary policy. Yes, that's right. It does because they they just they don't understand what taxation is there to do. It's it's another one of these things that we we need to perhaps focus on a little bit more. Is I mean, you've probably seen the the very latest paper that's come out by Randy Ray criticizing. Joe Biden's corporation tax obsession, mm, and no, it's a, okay. it's it's a good paper. It's a good paper, and uh, you know it it, it 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 the problem that you've got with that sort of taxation is if you do that sort of taxation to finance, you've then got to do taxation to actually release the resources that you need, and so you end up having to tax twice. And if you don't do that, then you will actually either drive inflation or you simply won't get the resources that you require. It's all very well raising thirty million pound from or thirty billion pound from rich people to try and buy doctors, but if there aren't any doctors, you can't buy them. It's mm. it's that it's that issue that we need to we need to get across is that you need to start we need to start talking about taxation in 
in resource terms. You know, how many machines have we got? How many ships have we got? How many people have we got? That's the uh, that's the key to it. You need to be talking about it like you would if you were if you were organising a military campaign. You know, the military the military sit there and they actually talk about tanks and ships and and fighter aircraft. They don't generally talk about two hundred million dollars or whatever. Hmm. Um, okay, so so one other thing that came up with Andy was uh, the the idea that the Bank of England mm-hmm. basically get, outsources some of tasks, some tasks to commercial banks. Yeah, but but those tasks still occur on the Bank of England's computers or their accounts, yeah. the accounts that are on the Bank of England site. So so it really is. It really is the idea of there's a computer at the Bank of England, the database is on the Bank of England, the spreadsheet is on the Bank of England, mm-hmm. and they have taken a wire and they put a button on that, put a button at the end of it, and that button does, you know, for, for me and you as computer people, macro. It does a macro. Yeah. It's a macro. It does a certain num- certain set of steps. And they have just made that wire so super long that they put the button in a bank. And they say you can press this button. You now have we. You are now allowed to press this button. Yep. But that. But the wire reaches into the Bank of England. Yeah. And right. so, so I understand that. What the question that I didn't get to ask, and that I wanted to ask in the joint interview as well, and I'd like to ask you, mm-hmm. is, aside from making things confusing, <laughs> which is it was very convenient to create confusion, and then to do whatever you want, whatever you want during the confusion. Is there any practical, reasonable purpose for doing that? Yeah, it's budget control. It's just what, what you would do in any um, in any commercial organisation. When you're in any commercial organisation, you hand out budgets to your to your departments. So you hand out a uh, you know a budget to your um, I don't know. Let's just say for sake of argument, your your, your network supply department, and you say you've got you know and and, and you can spend. Um, Forty million pounds or whatever on on these items that you've said that you you are going you need forty million pounds for, and you've got to work within your budget. So the guy that's that's responsible for for the network provision has to work within his budget, and he's he's judged against that, and he's monitored against that. And if he hits his budget, he gets a you know a gold star, and if he doesn't hit his budget, he gets a clip across the across his lug hole. You know, so it's 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 just it's that it's just straightforward control. We have a mechanism within within accounting that, that it's you have what's called control accounts, and you have memorandum accounts. Memorandum accounts are essentially sub accounts of the of the control account. Everything that's done in the memorandum account appears on the control account. And that's actually what we have here with the Bank of England. The Bank of England has a control account and all these other departments have memorandum accounts that point to that control account. And so all the transactions that all the departments do just actually uh, in reality occur on the control account. But from the department's point of view, they appear on their little subset. If I was going to do this in database terms, I don't know anybody's anybody who's listening is into uh, SQL databases. But if they are, then you have a you have a database, and then you can have views on that database. You can create a view on mm. the database. Oh man, you're making me messed up. <laughs> so that's what that's that's what they are. These are these are views on the database, and you can operate through that view as though it were its own a view on the table in a database. Let's get it right. So if you have view on a table, um, all the transactions operate on the actual table. But if you operate through the view, you only see the bit that you're allowed to see. 
Um, and that's that's all it is. All these so-called commercial accounts that are that are sat in in Barclays and and Nat West are just budget accounts that um, that departments use to uh, to so they can they can see whether they're hitting their budget targets or not. The actual transactions, the actual payments, come out of an account in the uh, in the Bank of England when they press spend on their uh, on their Barclays account. I can. I mean, the, the, there's a Bax record. It's got three entries in it, which is, you know, what which account it came out of at Barclays, which account it's going to somewhere else in the banking system, and also where the money is that we're going to use to, tra- to transfer. So it's a three, it's a three party system. That's that's how all bank transactions work. What I, what I think you're saying is that they're essentially just giving that responsibility to. They're they're basically just kind of reasonably just giving a department a particular responsibility. I think that's yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And but, that's, but, there's a criti- but there's a critical distinction, though. Mm-hmm. That this is not someone in the government that they're giving this, the government department. They're giving this to a commercial bank. Well, no, the, the government department is running that commercial bank account. So although it's, a, although it's a commercial bank account, as in it's an account at Barclays, it's run by, for example, the Department of Work and Pensions. So the Department of Work and Pensions is using this, this account at the... Um, uh, at, NatWest or Barclays, it's NatWest probably if they're spending, then they're using it at NatWest and they're, they're using NatWest's facilities for managing bank accounts. So that's what they're buying. And so it's just the, you know, the facilities that you get in, a, in an accounting system. It, you know, it records transactions. You can, you can print off statements and you can check those against your accounting system. You can upload and download lists of transaction files just like you can on your app with your own current account. That's all it is. But when they actually press spend, there isn't actually any money in that account. When they press spend, the actual money comes out of a, a linked account at the Bank of England. Oh, so now, it's kind of the view that you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, this is the view. So you've got this view in that West, which is a view on, 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 on an account in, in the Bank of England. In, in the UK, we have building societies. A building society is, a, is an agency bank. And what they do is they run sub-accounts that actually are, the actual transactions come out of a, out of a central account that they hold with another with another bank, that's how agency banks work. Um, there is a what's called a a Nostro account or a Vostro account, depending on which side of the balance sheet you look at it at, which is which all the transactions come through. But every single person who's a who's a member of that building society will have a a sub account that's run within the building society's um, accounting system. And when they hit pay, it comes out of the main account, or when they hit deposit, it goes into the main account. And that's why you have to put. Sometimes when you're depositing with a building society in the UK, you don't just put the account, uh, the sort code and the account number. You also have to put a, a, a payment reference in with the with the your building society, what's called roll number, so that they know when, when the main account gets that particular payment, which sub-account to shove it into. Huh. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. Why don't we close out? Uh, if you could uh, basically give people a preview of next week's episode, which is our joint interview with the three of us about your paper. So can you give basically a preview of the paper or more broadly, just a, a preview of the accounting model of the UK exchequer? Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. The, the paper. I mean, is, I mean, yeah. I mean the, the actual accounting model of the UK exchequer. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's the title of your paper. Yes. That's the title of the paper. You want me to go into the actual thing itself or uh, well, just to however you feel is an appropriate preview for a preview, listeners yes. to a 200 page epic for anybody who suffers from really serious insomnia. Yes. Seven minutes. Go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's, Yes, it's uh, it's it's a it's a chunky piece of work, 
that goes through the uh, that goes through the whole of the uh, of the exchequer system um, historically and and up to the present day in an attempt to try and establish whether um, uh, whether we do actually have to get taxes before we spend to which the answer is no that's that's it in the in the uh, in, in in a nutshell but it does go through everything it goes through the whole of the taxation system it goes through uh, the way that national insurance works it goes through um, how uh, government both receives and spends money what the central accounts are what the history of the exchequer is and also it provides uh, useful summaries uh, and uh, abstractions that that show how mmt actually fits into uh, uh, fits into this into this particular in, into this particular model what's called the whole of government accounts view um, which we uh, i think we 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 put in section eight i think it is i think it's section eight and that's that's the uh, the oh, overview. That's the, that's the that's the one where the bank, the whole of government accounts, is where the Bank of England is part of the government the public sector. sector. Yeah. Yes, and that's uh, and when we we do that, and we we also sh- we can show from that summary, that summary is a summary of Appendix A, and Appendix A is a full detailed um, accounting description of how all the uh, um, how all payments and bond issues and repayments are done, and so by 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 doing a full sort of a full journal and balance sheet um, exposition in Appendix A, and then the the uh, the whole of government accounts in Section Eight simply does nothing more than than a uh, use the rules of accounting to to offer a consolidated view of that Appendix A, and then we can show that uh, from that that fits precisely with what MMT states about the way that reserves move backwards and forwards between the uh, between the government sector and the non-government sector, and uh, you know it's. Uh, and, and it, the the appendix A ties into the balance sheets of the uh, the, the public balance sheets that are issued by the government. So we've got a uh, a full trail from the public balance sheets through to the uh, to the full summary, through to the sectoral balance structure that MMT uses, and it's all one hundred percent consistent and exactly as uh, as described. Can you bring up one uh, more concept, uh, and that is the consolidated fund and the sui generis number that oh, is yes. the uh, the heart, the heart of, the of everything. Book. Yeah, the consolidated fund. Yes, the the um, the central bank, Bank of England, isn't the source of money in the UK. The source of money is the consolidated fund of the United Kingdom. That's the uh, um, it's. It's a collection of accounts. It's not really just one account, but it's a collection of accounts. One of which is known as the Exchequer account of the Bank of England. But there are uh, it's it's a set of accounts. The Consolidated Fund is a is an entity that maintains its own set of accounts. And the important the important sort of insight, I suppose, might be a, a slightly um, vain way of describing what we've what we've come across is that what we call net financial assets in. Uh, in MMT, which is essentially how much money you, I, and everybody else has got within within a currency area, is precisely and uh, and uh, balanced in, a, in an opposite manner by a asset on the consolidated fund. You can you can see that from the um, from the balance sheets and journals in, in Appendix A of the document. Um, it's always the same. So for us to have assets of any description. Net assets. This is net financial assets. There has to be a balancing a balancing figure on the other side of the balance sheet, and that balance is held in the consolidated fund of the United Kingdom, 
and it feeds through to the central bank via the National Loans Fund and the gilts that the National Loan Fund issues, which the Bank of England um, owns. That's where QE ends up. And uh, the Bank of England then issues its own liabilities against those gilts. So this uh, this uh, this idea that central the central bank is the centre of everything isn't true. It just simply isn't true. Certainly not as far as the United Kingdom is concerned. It's the consolidated fund that's the uh, that's the centre, and that consolidated fund is owned and controlled by the UK government, and uh, and is uh, uh, is allowed it is allowed to issue from that only but only on the say so of Parliament. I actually thought that the consolidated fund was essentially a department of the Bank of England. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it isn't. It's, it's the other way around. <laughs> the, the Bank of England is a department of the consolidated fund. It's huh. the, the consolidated fund actually, as far as I'm aware, owns is the, is the notional holder of the uh, of the bank stock of the Bank of England. Ah, all right, that's totally different. Okay. Yeah, it's entirely the other way around. It's a, mm. it's a, to, to the extent that the bank stock is actually an asset of the uh, um, of the, the consolidated fund, so you know it's uh, it's yeah it's and that balances against the gilts. So you interesting you, you see it that way around. It's it yeah. is fascinating. So just touch on the Swedish Naris, which, I, as I understand it, <laughs> yeah. is is uh, yeah it, there is a literal number yes. and that is the number that is that a person can go in and just touch the digits for yes that's it those are the digits those that's the uh that's the net financial assets there's net financial assets on that on our side and then there's this sui generis number on the other side we call it sui generis because there's no name for it um the, the whole of government accounts mentions in its balance sheet that it's the um it's what's the phrase that it uses it's the um uh, to be to be funded by future tax collection or tax liabilities or something like that, which is oh, just a, so. Sui generis is your term. Sui generis is just it's it's yeah it's the, the, there is no name for it. It's it, that's all it only oh, means. The Voldemort of money. Okay. Yes, it's very much so. It has no it, it has no 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 official name. It's just because it's just a balancing figure. It's just a balancing figure. It's just you know mm-hmm. balance carry it forward. So you know balance is we we, we originally start we call, we originally called it balance, but that confused the, the hell out of everybody. So we mm-hmm. uh, we changed it from that to something else. But it is literally um, you 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 have assets and you have liabilities and you subtract the. Um, you subtract the liabilities from the assets and that gives you a balancing figure and that balancing figure sits on the asset side of the balance sheet. It's a balancing asset and it's a sui generis balancing asset. And the best best description for it is at some point in time, all the net financial assets that are held by everybody will be collected by taxes and paid back to the treasury, perhaps at some point, assuming the country ends. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, that, it's that notion. And... Uh, um, when when you hear neoclassical sitting there, I like it makes me laugh every time I hear them when they sit there. Say, oh, you know, all this debt that we've got at the moment is going to have to be paid paid back by taxes on on people in the future. It's like, yes, it will, absolutely correct, it will. But they'll also have the uh, the assets that from uh, it's this classic one, isn't it? The grandchildren are going to have to pay off our tax our our liability in taxes. It says yes, using the assets that they inherited from granddad, because that's what the gilts are. The gilts are effectively a a big container for a bunch of taxes that will be paid in the year uh, paid when they are finally spent. Mm. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Wonderful. Uh, wow. This has been, this has been great. This has been really great. <laughs> Two hours, is, it, <laughs> is there, is there a, is there anything you want to say before, before we end? No, other than thank you very much for, for inviting me on. And I hope we can do one again about job guarantee. Cause I haven't mentioned it at all. Have we? <laughs> Two hours. We've not mentioned job guarantee hardly at all. 
Uh, I would love to. Yeah. I would love to. Um, no, this has been great. Uh, it's uh, your your blog posts and and especially with you reinforcing it today has been uh, rather enlightening. Um, so thanks, thank you so much for talking. It's been nice to finally. Yeah, that's good. It's, it's been absolutely fantastic. Hopefully, it's not been too waffly. I do worry no, about no, that I, sometimes. <laughs> I I really I like I like I said at the beginning, like a- Andrew and I. You, you, I think you know you'd be very surprised with what Andrew. And I, <laughs> I was very surprised, but I mean, I chose to do it, but I didn't realize to how much we would do it, and we uh, we ended up talking. Uh, the whole first hour was just about the Palestine-Israeli conflict oh, and music. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't MMT at all. It wasn't MMT at all, and I loved it. I loved it, it because you know, as I said, it, you know, I. It is really important to create that context. Yeah, it is really important to give people the context in which MMT exists, and that is MMTers. Yeah, and what MMTers care about, and I, no one else does that. No one else does that. Not not to the extent that I do. Yeah. And you know, so I really like like even Randy Ray. I and uh, Randy Ray and and Matt Forstatter and John Harvey. I had them to start off. I always talk about something personal, and then after that, I won't talk about. You know, we'll just get into academic topics after that point. Understanding and knowing MMTers better really helps understand or want gives people incentive to understand the MMT concepts better. So. Um, yeah. So no, I really, I kind of, you know, it's, it, that's my son with a video game. Um, <laughs> he won. <laughs> yeah, no, opposite, opposite. Oh, um, lost that, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, that, you know, so that's kind of the goal of, of my presentation and sometimes it goes, my presentation of my podcast. And yeah. so sometimes it goes all over the place and, and I, I really enjoy that. And I, and thank you for being flexible to allow me to do that. Oh, that's great. It's been, it's been terrific and it's been a real honor. So thank you very much for, for inviting me and let's hope we can do this again in the future. Thank you. And uh, we will talk on Reddit some more. Yes, absolutely. We, we, have, a, we have a plan. Let's see if we can make it into action. Okay. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape a Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online Headliner app.
Today's part two of my two-part conversation with systems consultant and GIMS associate, Neil Wilson. Neil's also the co-author of the 2020 paper, An Accounting Model of the UK Exchequer, which is published by the Gower Initiative for Modern Money Studies, or GIMS. Today's episode is also part five of a larger seven-part series with all three co-authors, first individually and personally, and ending with a joint interview with all three, where we discuss the paper in depth. In part one, Neil and I talked about how he came to MMT, how he led a lawsuit against the UK government in the name of 10,000 people, and MMT on the social media platform Reddit. Today in part two, I learned a whole lot from Neil. I read several of his blog posts and I asked him several questions about them. You'll notice me experience more than one light bulb. Neil's blog is newwayland.com, and links to each of the posts we discuss can be found in the show notes. To share one example, I knew that the neoclassical assumption of full employment also requires the assumption of balanced trade. What I learned today is that although I'm correct, it's bigger than that. The assumption of full employment requires no leakages of any kind. In other words, if even $1 of income is not spent, or it is spent, but not in the United States, then demand in the United States will, of course, be less than maximized. This means that firms will respond by lowering production, which puts workers in danger of being let go. This means that full employment is no longer possible. So if a dollar of income is saved or invested, that's a dollar not spent at an American firm, and this is called a leakage. If $10 is spent to buy something from a company in Italy, but only $5 are spent at American firms, then that's another $5 leakage. So neoclassical economics requires every dollar of income to be spent and for those dollars to be spent in the United States. There's some more to this, but I'll leave it there. You'll find a link to a post where I discuss this topic, although it was written before I spoke with Neil, in the show notes. We end today's episode by discussing Neil's role in the UK Exchequer paper, including how he discovered it and how he came on board. He also gives a brief summary of the paper and its concepts, which serves as a nice preview for next week's episode, where I talk with all three co-authors and ask them a bunch of questions on the paper itself. But for now, let's get right back to my conversation with Neil Wilson.